Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. You may be seated. On Monday morning, I pulled a book from its shelf and settled into the sagging rocker I paid 20 bucks for in a neighbor's driveway last spring. The book was one I hadn't read or thought about for years, but when I started reading, all sorts of feelings and associations and memories returned including the winding drive up Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville to the Methodist bookshop with the tinkling bell on the door and the left-hand turn I'd take when I stepped inside it toward the shelf where Frederick Buechner's books were always on display. Mercifully, I think I'm not in the habit of reporting extensively on my feelings to you from this pulpit, but that's what I'm doing here now. I'll bet there are books or songs, or objects, or smells that elicit sudden feelings in all of you, maybe in disarming and surprising ways. Yes, it was one of Frederick Buechner's books that I opened on Monday morning, a memoir of his childhood, The Sacred Journey. And Buechner is nothing if not a master of nostalgia, if we can use that word generously. Nostalgia comes from the Greek nostos, which means to return home, and algos, which means pain. So maybe before nostalgia is necessarily saccharine or escapist, it's a kind of homesickness that's very much felt in the present. And Frederick Buechner's conviction, whether he was writing a novel or a sermon or a memoir, was that we all share a kind of homesickness. And even that we can access something holy at the source of our lives, not only through our own memories, but through someone else's if they're truthfully told. And so it was for me. That wonderful nostalgic ache opened up as I read of Misseldine's drugstore that smelled of medicine and newspapers and cologne and where they made strong dark Cokes at the soda fountain and grilled cheese sandwiches as heavy and limp as dead birds. (laughs) And as I met Beekner's terrifying grandmother again, sitting in her overstuffed chair next to an unlit lamp, listening to Wagner on the Philco. She knows the libretto by heart, he tells us, as she also knows by heart how to crochet in the dusk with her silk and scissors lying on the great shelf of her bosom. I've never been to Misseldeen's. And aristocratic grandmother Beekner in her 12th floor Manhattan apartment might as well have been inhabiting another planet from my grandparents, sitting in their matching floral lazy boys in Arkansas watching the Lawrence Welk show. <laughs> but somehow something like love was stirred. If not for these particular people and places, then maybe for this way of sacred remembering. Memory is more than a looking back to a time that is no longer, Buechner said. It is a looking out into another kind of time altogether, where everything that ever was continues not just to be, but to grow and change with the life that is in it still. So maybe there's a way of remembering 
even a form of nostalgia that's not wishing we were back in another time and place, but the opening of a present experience of love for the world as it is in all its beauty and brokenness. And maybe there's a love for the things of the world, even by way of memory or nostalgia or that sacred homesickness that can actually be not a distraction from, but the way into an expanded love in us for God. Put another way, what if actually learning, if learning to actually feel a form of love for my neighbor with all her quirks and sins is how I actually learn to feel a transforming love for God? It's possible that a loving nostalgia was stirred in a few of you this morning by the song of Ruth, because you remember it being read at your wedding. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. It really is a perfect love poem for a wedding, isn't it? Except for that pesky overlooked detail that Ruth did not say it to her soon-to-be lover Boaz. She said it to Naomi, her mother-in-law. And whatever your relationship with your mother-in-law happens to have been like, I'm guessing she's not the person you had in mind when you got all misty-eyed at those promises once upon a time. (laughs) Now here's what a clever preacher might do with a setup like this. He might go on to explain to you that there are different kinds of love and say that in our time, we're far too obsessed with the romantic variety. It, It stirs our useless nostalgias and distracts us from the hard work of love in the present, which involves decisions more than feelings. He might even talk about how impoverished our English language is, as was the ancient Hebrew, having only one word for the varieties of love. The Greeks, he'll tell you, mostly to let you know he's been to seminary, had no fewer than six words for love. And maybe he'll say that thing about how many words for snow the Eskimos have, and you'll nod along thoughtfully, thinking he's made a very good point about the love and the snow and all that. (laughs) But for today, at least, I'm not that preacher. Because I don't think Hebrew and English are entirely wrong for using the same word for your love for a husband or a grandmother or a sister or a friend or a grilled cheese sandwich heavy and limp as a dead bird. And before the love of Ruth for Naomi was a choice to follow her into her strange country and even a life with her strange God, I think Ruth's love was an affection she could feel. Why else would the story turn to poetry when she told her what she decided to do? I also think Jesus was inviting us into loves that we experience in our very bodies and our being, not just responsible decisions we make with our minds. When Jesus told a scribe that the greatest commandment was to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, and that the second was to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, first of all, the difference between God and your neighbor is probably a lot bigger than the difference between your girlfriend and a grilled cheese sandwich. But Jesus used the same word for love of God and love of neighbor. And secondly, If he was talking about a dispassionate decision-making process that some automatron told you is what real love is, why does Jesus say it requires all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength? 
Maybe unconditional agape love is not precisely the same thing as eros. But Jesus talks as if it's just as all-consuming and that it lives in the very same place. The place where our affections and our fears and our deepest desires live, which means it lives in the place where the wounds that have made us may still be tender as well. Grief, after all, is not a symptom, is a symptom of love, not a sign of its absence. Grief is what love looks like in the face of loss. No one's ever grieved the loss of something they didn't love. The point being that you can't love like Jesus wants us to love with only your mind. Not God or your neighbor, I'm afraid. This life Jesus calls us to involves every part of us, our deepest set emotions very much included. Now the specter of the Reverend Dr. Judith McDaniel, my homiletics professor, is looming rather large right now, scolding me about preaching on the gospel and the Old Testament lesson in the same sermon. Not supposed to do that but I'm sorry, I've got to go with my heart this time and say I really do believe there's something importantly connected in all of these loves. Ruth's love for Naomi, who asked to be called Mara because her life had become so bitter with pain and grief, is not unrelated to Ruth's love for Boaz, whom she will make a shrewd move on at the threshing room floor, but will also fall headlong for, as he will for her. Nor is your love for the people and the things that you love, even your memories, unrelated to what it means to love God with all of your life. If we think love of God is a concept we hold in our heads or a responsible moral decision we make, I just don't think we're in the realm of our lives Jesus keeps trying to reach into. If we scrubbed the messiness of desire and obsession and longing It's embedded in actual human relationships from our concept of Christian love. Well, Jesus might look over at us and say, I'm sorry, but you're actually still quite far from this kingdom of God. But what we see in the stories of Scripture over and again is that even our small and imperfect human loves can be opening into larger ones, doorways through which God can lead us into more expansive ways of loving Ruth's love for Naomi led her to Jerusalem, and not just to Boaz, but into the lineage of David, which was the lineage of Jesus. And Jesus will say more about loving God and loving neighbor. He'll expand our concept of neighbor beyond the familiar person next door until it includes Samaritan heretics and outright enemies. In fact, it seems like the path to loving God, whom we cannot see, as 1 John points out doesn't run around, but directly through our love for the flawed and complicated humans that populate our own flawed and complicated stories. A big part of me wants to believe that isn't so. I love the idea that loving someone doesn't require me to like them. I've said that myself, but I just don't believe it anymore. I'm even coming to believe that some aspect of my experience of the loving kindness of God will be trapped and cut off by my felt contempt for another human being. Some part of me can't be open to God until it opens to this person I despise. That sounds like a heavy burden, if not an outright curse, especially given my feelings for more than a few of God's children right now. But for centuries, the mystics and contemplatives 
have told us that this difficult truth is also a way. In our tradition and across religious traditions, spiritual guides have taught us ways of praying that quiet down our chattering minds and turn our attention toward feelings we hold in our bodies and our breath, which means you can start with loves that come easily to you, maybe even nostalgic memories, romantic crushes. Start with a felt love that comes easily, and from there, you can learn to pray in ways that expand that love outward, just as Jesus taught. Through parts of ourselves we might find hard to love, to other people, to outright enemies, and even to God. We won't finish such work in a lifetime. I do believe movement is possible. And the church really can be a community whose practices and sacraments expand our loves outward a little further each day, a little further each year, to involve, if not all of them, at least a little more of our hearts, our souls, our minds, our strength. So here's a little assignment. Go find one thing in your life that you love madly this week, a child, a story, a memory, even the creak of your favorite Calvary pew. And let yourself love it with all that you are and all that you have. But don't see that love as an end. See it as the beginning. Don't see it as an arrival, but as the first step on a path that leads through loves that come harder, through loves that may feel impossible right now, but a path you might even come to believe, whose entire length is held, just as you are, by the limitless loving kindness of God. Amen. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.